You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and joining me once again is Daniel Beskar. Uh, could you please introduce yourself, Daniel? Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Daniel Bessner. I'm the co-host of a podcast uh, that is new called American Prestige on uh, international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and I'm also a professor at the University of Washington, a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine, and a uh, what else am I? I'm a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. Uh, so you're, you're you're a busy guy. So thank you for taking the time uh, to come on. Uh, this show you've been on a bunch of times now so i think you're officially a friend of a friend of the show um friend friend of the pod yeah friend of the pod and we'll get we'll send you that t-shirt that says friend of the pod yeah. um, hold on that is a that is a pod save america yes thing, yeah right? i know i know um <laughs> but uh so uh we the last time we talked uh it was shortly after um the end of the trump presidency the beginning of the biden presidency and we talked about whether trump would be uh should be seen, would be seen, uh, is uh, the worst president in American history. And we sort of batted that back and forth. He's not and, even the worst president of the last uh, 20 years. <laughs> well, uh, this so this question uh, returned to um, the public sphere because a couple weeks ago, um, C-SPAN, the network, released its Presidential Historian Survey 2021. Apparently they've been doing this since the end of every presidency since 2000 i think um and we'll include the link to this really uh in-depth website that they put together where you can look at all their all the different ratings and compare people and um i don't know it's, it's almost like uh you know you see seeing the stats and um for you know for uh mlb or something baseball players yeah. so they so they've done four they done four oh, yeah they, that'd be fun they should do like a president's baseball cards like how many wars did you start how many americans did you kill how many non-americans did you kill that would be a good good little thing <laughs> yeah i actually. mean and then the ki- kids could trade them and then you know um they probably were something someday and then you know maybe because in 50 years everyone would throw away their william henry harrison cards that one would eventually like be really valuable um and okay so so yeah so they've done four iterations of this starting in 2000 and then uh the newest one just came out and so uh, what i so i thought it would be interesting to have you back on to talk about this so um let's see so i mean the headline so they're ranking the presidents in terms of greatness they they queried you know it looks like at least 100 different uh historians of American of the American presidency, and like I said, they have all these, um, you know, they, they somehow derive these numbers down to the tenth decimal place, such that you could say, um, you know, uh, it, Richard Nixon um, in the uh, pursuit equal justice for all category, he had a forty two point eight. Um, so, so okay, yeah, that's have, a meaningful number. Yeah, so we have these facts <laughs> I mean, now. Like- this okay. whole thing is ridiculous. Well, let let's, me just, let's just start with that. Yeah, yeah. So the last thing I'll say, I just want to read off what they list as the who they list as the best presidents. Uh, 2021. Uh, number one, Lincoln. Two, Washington. Three, FDR. Four, Teddy Roosevelt. Five, Eisenhower. Six, six, Truman. Seven, Thomas Jefferson. Eight, John F. Kennedy. Nine, Ronald Reagan. Ten, Barack Hussein Obama. 
So that's the right. top. Well, 10. obviously, recency bias for like five of those, and then founders and Lincoln. Uh, so kind of ridiculous the whole thing. I mean, such a boomer list. Uh, ridiculous that Kennedy is on there. What was he eight or nine, something like that? Like that makes that just makes no Kennedy sense. Kennedy at eight. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, the the whole thing is an absurd exercise. Um, that what what is interesting though, and and maybe a little bit off topic is like, what's the obsession with ranking? Uh, which has become like a thing in popular culture last 20 years. I think especially Bill Simmons does a lot of rankings and his websites, uh, Grant Land and the Ringer are very successful. Yeah. So that, that's Buzz an feed, interesting Buzz list the 20, the 27, you know, episodes yeah. of, you know, friends you need to rewatch before whatever. So that, yeah, I mean, it's sort right. of a content. It's a thing. G- generation thing. That yeah, it's a content generation thing for sure. Uh, I mean, because I mean, this is totally meaningless. Like, if the point of communication is to increase knowledge, at least in an ideal speech situation, <laughs> uh, this does nothing of that. No knowledge is increased. You know, no one learns anything from this. You just learn the kind of the the biases of you know people who have the objective. Uh, sheen of being uh you know professionally trained experts historians but okay well well, then something something is being learned but maybe it's not what the um people who put this thing together intended nothing about presidents is being learned right because there's no i mean you cannot if you wanted to do something like this and you had you you would have to like really define greatness very coherently well there are categories very coherently let me me just read out the categories so each so i i believe that each of these um each president was ranked by each historian on a numerical scale. I don't know if it's be one to 10 or one to a hundred in each of these categories, public persuasion, crisis leadership, economic management, moral authority, international relations, administrative skills, relations with Congress, with Congress vision slash slash setting an agenda, pursuit equal justice for all and performance within context of times. I believe that's 10 categories. And yes, that's, that's how they get, they derive these numbers saying that, you know, uh, George Washington has 873 or whatever, and that, that's, that's how the ranking is generated. So, so they're yeah, not, just talk, not just saying, uh, you know, um, uh, John Adams were, were you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't say take, take each person right. but for all of those. and, like, rank them and sort of a, do, like, a rank choice voting calculation. Right. They're right. somehow saying that these are the important things. And right. then but for are, all of those, what's the, what's the normative position, Right. Like, what is good economic math? There's no normative baseline from which to actually make judgments. Mm-hmm. So this is just random people giving random uh, answers to random questions. Well, they're not. I mean, uh, they're not random. They're they're you know tenured professors. Well, what's, so what's good? What's good international relations? So okay, what's good so, economic management? Right. Well, what's good, good economic management? We could probably leadership? we could probably say because that you know. There's numbers. Right. And so, are, the economy. Well, are you going by GDP? Are you going? I mean, like, why go yeah, by I, GDP? I, I, is, I that, no is that a is that a useful statistic? I, I have my doubts. You know, American GDP is pretty good. America, uh, the American economy for most people isn't great. So the whole thing is absurd. I, this is why it works for <laughs> pop culture, right? When you're, you're you're trying to figure out your favorite character of The Wire, you know, then you could be like, yeah, Omar Omar is cool, right? Omar always wins those. But it, it just doesn't make sense yeah. for something that this, I mean, I guess this is all just fun. But it, to me, it's like it's hard to be fun when like American presidents have been responsible for so much death and misery. Um, but Americans don't care about that. So like rank them, you know, JFK's yes. eight. You know? Yes. Okay. So I've been sort of playing devil's advocate, but I also think this whole thing is pretty dumb, although maybe not quite as dumb as you think it is. And um, what I, my initial thought when I saw this, well, let me just fill in a couple extra facts here. 
Okay, so they, they track over time. So, you know, the, the views of historians change over time. Um, Ulysses S. Grant rose from 33 to 20 in, in terms of ranking. And Andrew Jackson fell from 13 to 22. So we can, we can, you know, there's obvious explanations for that, which is that Trump, you know, viewed or, or supposedly viewed Jackson as his predecessor. And then the understanding of, uh, Grant's, uh, tenure in reconstruction has been, you know, there's been a revival in Grant. Right. I think uh, both of those are, both of those I think are explained by like, uh, uh, transformations in how people understand the history of race in the United States. It, right, I mean, and, and then it, the and then the third Jackson one is, will continue to fall. Uh, the third one I, is, I, I is Wilson. Uh, will, uh, Woodrow right. Wilson uh, fell. He, he was six in the last one. Now he's thirteen. So that's that's sort of the same thing that that elevated. And he'll continue Grant. to fall too. Yeah. yeah, even though I mean yeah. certainly he did a lot. I mean, so it's you know, uh, you know, and then it, the question is what is great is actually the, ep- the last episode I did. Um, with uh, was with the uh, literary critic Christian Lorenzen, and we talked about um, yeah. like uh, the great American novel and and what does that mean? And so obviously greatness has no specific definition, and um, you know it's it's a, a, even hard to define a novel. And now we were talking about who is the great baby boomer American novelist, and it's, right. it's hard to pin well, you know novels like films. That. Yeah, I think with with that novels like films, they're just no longer the center of the culture anymore. So it, this is going to become an increasingly academic question. Like novels are going the way of opera and jazz. Um, so that's also, you know, interesting. It, like I, I, this is my big theory, uh, that we're, 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 you and I in our lifetimes, uh, have witnessed the really the decline of mass entertainment. Um, and I think that is really the major story. And you see that with the decline of film, the decline of the novel, um, the increasingly, um, uh, the increasing relevance of, of real micro communities, uh, yeah. the decline of mass, mass culture as a whole. I mean, so like the greatness of an American novel, it almost doesn't matter because novels are just not at the center of culture and probably never will be again. Um, but in, in theory, like this is shaping how people understand politics. So it's more nefarious in a sense. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. Um, and the sort of this the idea that they you know were able to get these things down to the tenth decimal point just sort of adds to the absurdity of being well, able to say of numbers. That right? not only not only you give a yeah. one to ten rank in something called moral authority, you could say it's well it's seven point three, and um, and that's it's it's sort of like pitchfork. You know, pitchfork gives those uh, for almost best. all of those presidents, the answer would be very low <laughs> for moral, for moral authority. authority. Well, hopefully, well, maybe, you know, uh, at the end of the Biden one or two terms, you will be asked, um, to participate in this process and you can, you know, submit your things full of goose eggs. That or- is funny. <laughs> I'm always asked to participate in, in like international relations uh, polls that do similar things. I'm always like, uh, you know, like, should the United States, you know, what should the military be? I'm like, zero. <laughs> I'm always the outlier for all those things. I mean, these things are all ridiculous. It just re- represents a, uh, fan, uh, a, a, a fantasia about numbers being meaningful and things that they're not really meant to quantify. And that's very much a spirit of the age. And in a hundred years, we'll look back on it and it'll all be ridiculous. And I, I implore readers, uh, readers, sorry, listeners, watchers well, to look at it. Yes. And viewers to look at a book called Trust in Numbers by the great UCLA historian Theodore Porter. Uh, and he writes about like what, why is it exactly that quantification has come to be fetishized in our particular society? Uh, and this to me, this stuff to me is really a representation of that, of that trend, which is very bad. Um, and yeah, I think and- like actually removes the human from things that are profoundly human and profoundly qualitative. Okay. And you, you mentioned the wire jokingly as ranking who's the best character on the wire and um 
you know, one, one of the themes of the wire was the stats and juking the stats yeah. and, and, yeah. and, you know, so taking things that, um, what, you know, like downgrading crimes or, uh, and how they're classified so that the crime rate looks like it's getting better when it's really not. And then they took it into no child left behind era, uh, you know, middle school and the, the stats, um, in terms of testing and stuff like that. So yeah, juking the stats, um, <laughs> is a big thing. I don't, I mean, it, and you know you can say a test answer was correct or incorrect whereas these things are totally um you know the, the whatever value is totally humanly assigned or something but I, one one other thing that interested me and i got is that okay so who is the best well what do you think who is the best president in american history if you had to pick one <laughs> uh probably lincoln or fdr Okay, so probably Lincoln or FDR. Yeah. So they rank Lincoln one. Also, they say Washington to two, Rose, uh, FDR three. So what I was thinking was like, this country is so insane, and there's so little agreement that even, you know, when I was um, when I was coming up, like probably you only could have gotten mass agreement that Washington and Lincoln should have been one and two, and then after that it would have been a free for all. And so FDR three, well, of course, you know, the people who, uh, founded National Review would, would certainly not put him there. They would put him towards the bottom. And then, uh, you know, Eisenhower five, that's sort of surprising. Um, that's ridiculous, by like the way. Say, Eisenhower. Kennedy, Kennedy was not a good president. So he's eight. So that's total like sentimental. Let me just, let me just go off on Eisenhower for a second. He literally <laughs> institutionalized a national security state. Like, if, regardless of his, like, final military-industrial complex speech, the farewell address of, I believe, January 61, Eisenhower did a lot of very bad things, you know, overthrow of Yacobo Arbenz, overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh, you know, I think in my, in my own work helped inspire the failed East German uprising of 53 by promising things that weren't going to be there. Um, institutionalized the national security state, which I think is a very damaging thing. So it's really ridiculous that he's, I mean, it's a very boomer answer. I would yeah, imagine well, the average well, age they of say, this they is, say is inter- I mean, where I don't know where you would even put those things and, pro- and possibly within the, the ranking of greatness, those would be considered good things because like they, the person accomplished something. So, you know, if we're saying international relations is one tenth of the total ranking, um, then, you know, uh, instigating foreign coups that didn't turn out so well only is a slight deduction, I guess. Yeah. That's how you get Eisenhower Great move. five. Great move. Um, get yeah, Iraq I mean, to hate so, us forever. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, if you like, I'm just thinking like a conservative looking at this ranking, well, well, maybe they would put Reagan one and then Washington two, and maybe like Lincoln three. But then of course, I mean, I think, I feel like there, there used to be more sort of anti Lincoln stuff circulating in the air, but it used to be, I mean, like when I was, you know, 20 or so years ago, you would still see anti Lincoln stuff. Lincoln's been, I don't know seemingly more more deif- even more deified since then but um they certainly wouldn't put truman six and obama 10 so it's just like wh- but really what wh- you know, what could everyone agree on it's lincoln and washington so there's been four well, historians five- are liberal i mean like i i historians are our centrist center left i would say as right. a, as a historian um i am on the outlier well no what that's not true it's different according to generation people under 40 are more to the left like everywhere else in the country people over 40 are, are more centrist or to the right and so that's why i would imagine the skewing of this uh age group would be slightly higher uh it's just like a gigantic generational shift in our politics and and this will be reflected in things like 
like this. I think that's probably a, a large explanation. The Lincoln thing's interesting. I would point people to Matt Carp's essay in Harper's, where he he does he he discusses this a little bit about sort of history, and he discusses how how the right has basically accepted Lincoln as one of their own. Um, now and it's like different from when we were younger about those criticisms. I mean, I think you even see it with I think it might have been Dinesh D'Souza or someone like that who's like Lincoln was a Republican. Yeah, yeah, you know, oh, he was, he's that. huge on that's his whole shtick these days. Is that like, did you know that the Democrats were the ones who you know right. support secession? Um, yeah, and so you know, party of Lincoln that's a um, surrender. That's a surrender to 30 years ago. That wasn't what you know people were saying on the on the right, yeah, particularly on the far right. It was anti Lincoln. That's so, a change. Well, I'll just note the strangely. So there's something called the 2021 advisory team for this project, which is four people, uh, Douglas Brinkley, Edna Green Medford, Richard Norton Smith, and Amity Schlaes. Is that how you say her name? So that last woman, she famously is the proponent of the greatness of uh, Calvin Coolidge. And that's her title here is the chairman of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. And then if you look at the ranking of Coolidge, he's, he's in there at 24. He's moved up slightly from 26. So what do they say? Where you stand is where you sit. And she sits in the, in the Coolidge, uh, in the, in the Coolidge presidential commission or whatever that was. Yeah. So there's some, you know, there's some people, some rich people out there who really love Kevin Coolidge and like a bankroll this woman's career of writing good things about Kevin Coolidge and spreading the gospel of Calvin Coolidge. Um, it's, it's it. It's a living, right? What the, the Flintstones would say. <laughs> right. And especially because, you know, the one who said that was like the, like, toucan who was a garbage disposal. The washing machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine what, what they're feeding energy slays and, and this is what she's putting out. But it is so, there's at least one conservative crank type on here. I don't know who Richard Norton Smith or Edna Green Bedford are. Douglas Brinkley is a very prominent public, you know, Right, but I would imagine yeah. even even the conservatives, um, the conservative historians, they wouldn't, they're not likely to be Trump historians. Oh, they're yeah, more yeah. likely to be like American greatness, patriotism, nationalist historians, which is related to the Trump thing, but isn't quite the same thing. The valence is different. So I, I would be shocked if there's like a Trumper on here, you know, like yeah, I, that I, would there's be, probably maybe a, one was, or two. Yeah, in the list of the hundred or so, like I said, there's a huge huge list here. It seems like it's probably more than a hundred people they consulted. I assume there's some people who are, uh, you know, uh, view the Trump strain in, in American history, you know, dating back to Jackson. Was Trump like, below Bush? Friend. I forget. Okay, Was Trump yes. worse than Bush? Yes. Okay. So let's get into ridiculous. The bottom, the bottom of the list. Okay. So we've talked about the greats, you know, and the problems, the problems with that. And then let's talk about the basement dwellers. So uh, here's the bottom five in reverse order. Uh, James Buchanan is the worst, then going Andrew Johnson, Franklin Pierce, Donald J. Trump, and William Henry Harrison. Uh, William Henry Harrison, of course, died in 30 days, so it's really hard to say much about uh, what he did. And I don't know how they got, you know, 6.4 for, for his sort of rankings. That's absurd. Um, so there is a three, it's a two uh, presidents before, be, before the Civil War, and Andrew Johnson the president who took over after Lincoln's assassination failed and, reconstruction and one of the great one of the great counterfactuals if it wasn't johnson in there what it would reconstruction would have been like yeah yeah i mean that's ridiculous when you're comparing <laughs> trump to george uh george w bush i mean that that is that is uh genu- genuinely almost offensive to the to the millions of people who who died and were deracinated as a direct result of george w bush's decision to invade iraq and to begin and prosecute a war on terror i mean there is just no comparison okay well, uh, this some, is, I, I, I have some bad news I, one, for you. Which one is second. That... I just want to underline <laughs> that I am not a fan of Trump at all. He was also a terrible president, but in terms of consequences, George W. Bush, uh, Trump does not approach George W. Bush. It just does not. 
Well, uh, unfortunately, your opinion is not ascendant within this group because, okay, so they obviously they didn't rank him in 2000. In 2009, they ranked him 36th, 2017, 33, 2021, 29. So he's improved oh, about, about four slots, you know, every presidential administration. So he, he'll be in the top 20, you know, probably when we're getting ready for retirement age, if, if we ever can retire as, you know, no, we, um, we won't. As we, as we die at our jobs. Penniless, <laughs> you know, uh, insecurely employed millennials are not employed at all in my case. But um, yeah, so, so, so I mean, in a way, the, the awfulness of Trump and the common understanding is making Bush look not quite so bad. And right back this whole thing about how he like is friends with Michelle Obama and they pass each other gum or something, you know, during uh, H.W. Bush's funeral, this kind of nonsense. Um, so, so the presentism you know, is sort of cutting both ways here. You know, everyone who's weighing in on this was alive and probably a, a tenured professor during the George W. Bush administration. Um, but they're sort of saying, hey, you know, maybe, you know, he didn't, um, he, he actually did care about pandemics and like assembled this document that was supposed to guide. I wish he cared about Iraqi life as much as he cared about And he, um, you know, he, uh, he didn't, um, unleash his followers to storm the Capitol. So that's, you know, that's, so we're sort of defining deviancy down, but um, yeah, well, okay. How do you think, uh, do you think, so, okay. So, so George W. Bush has raised, has climbed an estimation uh, since the end of his presidency. Do you think Trump is going to climb an estimation at all or sink or, or stay down there in that, that bottom five? <laughs> um. I think that Trump will remain very, very low for however long these polls are conducted. Quite this low, probably not. I would be shocked if he ever got above 40. I mean, he was not a good president by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, He didn't unleash world-ending horror uh, (laughs) that George W. Bush did. Um, I mean, I, I think Sam Moyne, had a good quote in his forthcoming book, Humane, is like Trump's foreign policies were just the policies of the previous two administrations, only more so. So he's not as uh, consequential um, in that sense. He was more of a caretaker president. Um, if there are documents, uh, I, I think we'll see a lot of dithering at the top of the administration and a lot of decisions made by middle management. Um, you know, which has been, which has happened, uh, before in the Reagan administration, for example, even to some degree in the Truman administration, for example. Um, and I just think, uh, as the, uh, the sort of, uh, a horror that liberal establishmentarians had at Trump's grotesquerie fades, he won't be quite as low. Uh, I think once millennials become the majority of this, poll which will happen you know in the next 15 20 or 40 years depending on how long the the boomers um <laughs> they're, you know, they're, hanging stay, on. they're hanging on yeah, i don't, uh, I don't I know think, if, if emeritus professors are allowed to participate in the survey or not oh, i'm sure not. they are i'm sure they are uh and uh I, I bush will w will sink like a stone um i mean leading up to the financial crisis and leading uh in uh, inaugurating the war on terror and the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq uh, are truly world, world historical crimes uh, that rank him. Uh, he should be, a, 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 you know, a, a below top, a bottom five. He should be in the bottom five. He should be in the as bad as pre-Civil War 
presidencies, uh, you know, up up there. Not not to compare uh, uh, slavery or what uh, W did. I, I don't. Um, I I am not going to address that issue. Just in terms of his pure consequences for the world that George W. Bush unleashed uh, were were horrible, were brutal, and were terribly destructive to millions upon millions upon millions of people not even thinking about the financial crisis, not even thinking about his response to Katrina. Um, so just terrible, uh, terrible president. Yeah, I agree. He is very bad. Um, as someone who, you know, is not a historian and I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, he deserves to be much lower. I mean, he is, um, currently he's one slot behind Ford and then two slots behind James A. Garfield. I don't know anything about his presidency and then three slots behind Jimmy Carter. Um, Jimmy Carter is currently 26 in this ranking. So I guess, I mean, that's roughly in the middle, maybe just slightly below yeah. the middle. Repl- you know, who is the replacement level president is an interesting <laughs> thing to think about. Of course, there's all these no names sort of after the Civil War, you know, the beer, all the beard guys who, uh, I don't, I can't distinguish them. And, you know, it was like era of good feelings and the Gilded Age and all that stuff. But anyway. Um, yeah, great feeling. Great for everyone. <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's that's so insane. That, that's like a thing. The era of good, ridiculous. Like in the Jim Crow South and the you know pestilential tenements of of the North, uh, and and sort of the conquest of the final conquest of of the West, the genocidal expansion West. So ridiculous. This is real. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So if there's, I mean, are there forty six or forty five presidents in this ring? I guess there's. Okay. Well, they Biden w- wouldn't be ranked, right? Right. So William Howard play. Taft is number 23. So he's smack in the middle. Yeah. Great and- colonial administrator of the Philippines. Uh, awesome guy. <laughs> um, and yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, clearly, yeah. clearly your emphasis on foreign policy is much different than the average person who was responding to the survey. Um, well, and- so this is interesting. This is interesting because I think this is – if you're going to judge greatness, right, you have to judge it from a humanist perspective. So you have to judge about how humans regard – because humans in, in, philosophically are all equally you know, subject to – have the same rights, blah, 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 if you want to think about it as a transhumanist perspective. So you have to take foreign policy into account. Unfortunately, Americans just don't care about foreign policy. So these uh, – from any – you know. As objective perspective is, you know, behind a Rawlsian veil of ignorance, you know, if you didn't know where in the world you were going to be under these presidents, uh, uh, I, I think you have to take foreign policy into account. And clearly this is just not done in, the, yeah. in these polls from most people. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it is, it's an, Amer- it's a, I assume almost all the people ranking these are actually Americans and not, you know, people who are from other countries and but study the, study American history. So there's that bias within it. Um, and yeah, so um, I just want to, so, you know, this got this thing, this, this is sort of a pseudo event. That's not even an event. Like the release of this thing um, occasioned, you know, write-ups in the mainstream press and Washington Post said, talking about Trump in particular, uh, quote, Trump got his best average rating on public persuasion, in which he came in 32nd on moral authority and administrative skills. However, he came in dead last. Um, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, yeah, definitely in terms of like administrative, uh, administrative skills. Trump was pr- is pretty bad. It was sort of. Yeah, I mean, that's my chaos. inclination, but we have no idea. I we there's no documents. This is all based on nothing on Bob Woodward books. I mean, that's my sense. Yeah, I mean, sure. It's, it's I, the thing is, well, well, uh, there's the famous thing where Trump 
gets, when he gets a document and he's done with it, he rips it up. And then there was like yeah. dozens of people who were being assigned to like tape these documents back together for, you know, Crazy. presidential, yeah. um, uh, record keeping and so forth. But, um, yeah, he's a very strange person. And, um, and I, I so it, the question is, are, are like, are we going to, there aren't going to be a lot of documents coming out that paint Trump in a more positive light than what we currently understand him to be. I think there'll probably be a lot more, uh, that paint him in a negative light or it's going to be things that weren't ever actually written down because people were like, we can't put this on paper. Like he just said something fucking insane. So there's going to, it's going to be relying on, you know, reports of the inner circle and, and that kind of stuff. So I, and lots of emails. I mean, this is the big question for historians, people who are interested in this, like the, just the pure amount of information that has been produced is going to be very difficult to go through. Um, it's not like, you know, even in 1970 where there were a ton of documents, but they were all hard copy for the most part, you know, it's going to be virtually impossible to figure out what's going on with a lot of these things for historians. It's a big question. Yeah. Particularly do people save things that were the hard drive. I mean, this is a difficult thing. Yeah. And then of course the, um, you know, the 2016 election charted in some part on, um, the, uh, document retention, digital document retention strategy of Hillary Clinton and you know just right. the the absurdity of that whole you know the server in the basement kind of thing and yeah so the um supposedly everything is being copied somewhere uh, but but who knows if it actually could be of course you know in the old old days I, I would doubt documents that just be destroyed I, yeah i i do i i bet everything is not being copied uh that would be my guess I, I bet, yeah almost certainly yeah but probably also a lot of these people are smart enough to realize that if there's something really bad, they should have a telephone conversation or talk about it in person with someone and not, you know, talk to uh, lay it out over email. But 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 who knows? Um, okay, there, uh, we've talked a lot about this. Anything else you want to say about? Well, yeah, I want to actually. Uh, uh, no, but I did want to bring up a topic that we hadn't uh, that we hadn't discussed because um, I think we're on opposite sides of this, so it'll be interesting. So, what's your take on the January six? Um, riots, given the Biden administration's response in terms of like heightened, basically counterterrorism, uh, anti-domestic extremist stuff. Because when it, when it first happened, I got a lot of shade. I wrote two articles for Jacobin, one with my good friend Amber Lee Frost, and one yeah. with my we, good we talk, friend. That's, that's wrong. We talked about that one. Um, I believe we did. Yeah. yeah. So I just wanted to think like, uh, and I predicted. Uh, <laughs> I don't like patting myself on the back, but literally exactly what I predicted happened, and maybe even. A a little bit worse uh, with the with the lumping of people who are I, I forget the exact phrasing but something like anarchists and people who are like anti-capitalist into a DVE domestic violence extremist category at least partially uh, I mean how this will be interpreted in courts or by by administered by um, actual agencies is of course difficult to know but I think it's it's pretty frightening stuff um, and particularly when you compare the power held by the administrative national security state versus the January 6th rioters. Um, but yeah, I was just curious your take on it has any, cause my take has been pretty consistent and I was just yeah, wondering I mean, if you've changed over time. Well, and, and the, and the latest thing to come down is that supposedly the, um, not supposedly reportedly the, uh, you know, Capitol police department or whatever is going to have like established satellite branches in other places. So yeah, keep an great. eye on that's great. Yeah. Keep an eye on, uh, tr- on troublemakers. I mean, okay. So the thing is, I, I, I can, t- I can continue to view the, uh, events of January 6th as like deeply, deeply stupid is sort of the, the core of them. And so if they had just, you know, what, what is the point of like, this giant intelligent apparatus that that has been built. Well, the accessible point is to prevent something like this from happening. If they had just had, you know, like 
you know, uh, three or four times as many, like, armed cops in, in riot gear to begin with instead of uh, just uniformed officers. And, you know, did you watch that thing, the, the New York Times documentary they put together about the unfolding of the, uh, you know, charging into the building itself? Uh, it, it, it's a fascinating document, and they used a lot of the original footage that the people themselves were filming, you know, the live streamers and so forth. And, you know, it, it, they show the, the, the exact moment when one person who seems to be involved with the Proud Boys goes up, turns his cap around backwards and starts getting in the face of one of these cops who's just, you know, standing behind the barricade. And he starts shit with this guy and riles everyone else in the crowd up. And that's the first breaking point. And once that happened, you know, the, 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 the deluge came. So if they just had more police officers there, then it would have been a lot harder for these people to get in. Sure, and... but now we're talking about the micro event of uh, like the the, the specific. Okay, like, well, well, okay. I think so. That that is not that interesting to well, me. You and like, I can. Yes, you and that I, is not good. You and I can agree that like the I I think that the Capitol should be defended enough that rabble rousers and other like disreputable types can't can't storm in and like take over and start smashing windows. Like, would you agree with that from your uh, from your? Uh, Ivy League perch over there in, in the uh, not Ivy oh, League. Your, your, I wish uh, your I was Ivy, Ivy League. Your Ivory Tower then I'd be making, perch. Maybe then I'd be making a lot more money. Uh, sure, yes. So there yes. should be like enough. You shouldn't be allowed to storm and and try to try to attack members of Congress. Okay, I, so I our, our giant you know um, Homeland Security apparatus and NSA uh, reading people's emails and something like didn't prepare us enough to repel the rabble um, and the confused people and so forth. That is that is not a correct thing to draw. It is not – these are all choices that people make. So what it shows is that you could still have this incredibly frightening apparatus, and it, and it doesn't matter if certain people who are responsible for particular things don't do certain things. That's what it shows. It doesn't show that we need more. You know, we have well, quite okay, a bit. The, the, whatever system <laughs> we had uh, failed, um, so we should right. – but I would say the failure is not in the technology of the system. Um, first of all, failure according to its own terms. I would say the whole system is a failure because we don't want our civil liberties to be uh, uh, basically just disregarded. But uh, that, well, that's if you, a different if you issue. Set, if you set up a system to prevent people, a mob, from storming a building and then they storm the building, then that's a systemic failure. Um, so, yeah, so it's unclear and there should be you know, a lot of people looking into uh, what the security – apparatus knew about what was going to happen and why they uh, reacted so poorly to it. And that will probably be a contested thing for a long time to come. The Republicans don't want that sort of investigation to happen. And, and may, you know, I think it is possible that there were people sort of on the inside who were like sympathetic to the, um, the, what became the mob. And, and then there's, you know, biases of thinking, Oh, these are sort of our type of people. These are just white people from Ohio and they like are just wearing silly costumes. And so it's not like, those Antifa, you know, BLM anarchist types, and so they're not really dangerous. That kind of stuff came into play. Um, so, in in some respect, like something needs to change. Um, and because uh, there was this huge failure that was totally absurd, and it could have been a lot worse. Uh, thankfully, you know, uh, the mob didn't get to uh, tear anyone limb from limb or anything like that. I think they probably would have done something like that, honestly, if they had been able to encou- encounter uh, actual. Um, or at least done something, you know, tried to beat them up or, or something, beat up the Congress people, uh, beat up Mike Pence, or who knows what, or maybe just take a selfie photo with them. They're like, they were, they're just this total aspect of absurdity and stupidity 
to the entire event. So that's so I'm not I'm not like a resistance lib who's who's thinking that you know this, this but, uh, uh, blah blah blah. But, but even like, beyond beyond the events itself, right? I think framing it in this way and having what could only I think accurately to be described as a literally hysterical reaction to something that just I mean and, and pure power facts was not a threat to the republic. Um, presenting it in any way as a threat to the Republic, I think it gives intellectual and institutional sucker to people who want to do things like increase the power of the national security state. Well, and w- when no... one is doing what, let me just finish. When one is yeah. doing a pure objective power analysis, there is just no connection between literally the military national security state versus a bunch of ramshackle, even if violent and and i think that that it's clear that some of them were violent and that some of them did have bad intentions um rioters that that were able to enter the capital i mean i just think that that yeah, power they, analysis is just not accurate there's no there's no way that an outside force can take down the american government in any reality that i understand like the the, the threat to the american government was donald trump and the, and his gop um, but they're within the system, not outside the system. So well, they're not a threat to the government. I mean, I, you can't say an elected president is a threat to the government. I, I, that just well, doesn't make I mean, sense. He was, unless you have he was the elected what, president, what? but he was uh, he lost the election, and then he claimed he didn't lo- lose the election, and it was being stolen from him, and that was sort of the crux of the whole. Oh, you're agreement. talking about post? Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought you were talking about while he was president. Well, I mean, yes, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. If, if Trump had declared himself, sure, that know, was definitely uh, against norms that I would support. Yeah, if Trump yeah, had yeah, declared yeah. himself first field field, ball, field marshal or something, you know, someone would have, um, you know, put him in jail or something, or the military would have come in and um, uh, taken him away, or maybe some uh, secret service agent would have just shot him in the head and and ended the entire thing. Um, I'm actually somewhat surprised that something like that didn't happen, but. Um, so yeah, there's no and like in the same way that like you know nine eleven, killing, you know killing um three thousand people and bringing down skyscrapers and destroying one fifth of the Pentagon didn't do anything to like bring down the American system. It's all what we do ourselves and um yeah. So obviously the people who are storming the Capitol are part of ourselves. They're Americans, but. You know, they. Yeah, so the proper response would have been this is really, you know, it was a scary event, particularly for people who experienced it. I, I, there's just no way to deny that. But it wasn't a meaningful threat to the Republic. And the most, given recent history, the less actual history, less 20 years of actually existing history, we need to be very wary about increasing the power of the security state. That is the proper anti Trump response to that. Except there was a drama that people are playing out in their lives to make it seem like they're in the French resistance in 1943, I, 1944. Yes, I, heard, I heard that, and that's the cosplay that aspect. Makes it, that, yeah, there's a cosplay aspect to it. I mean, this is not to – I don't think that's in any way, shape, or form downplaying what were obviously scary events, again, for people who uh, – particularly for people who were literally there. But that was not what happened in the result. It, it was it was treated as literally I don't know the British burning of the White House in eighteen uh, in the during the War of eighteen twelve. It's that was absurd. Well, let's and that okay. is going to have bad consequences for there, people, there's the particularly facts, critics on the left. There's the facts, and then there's the myth and or the symbolism of it. And so the symbolism of QAnon Shaman in his you know horns standing in the well of the Senate or wherever he was. That's a, that's a symbolic image that you know we're not going to forget anytime soon and yeah so the so the rabble was they could they could have killed some well you know they could have killed a congressman like that that could have conceivably happened they wouldn't have actually derailed the eventual um counting of the electoral ballots or affected in any way the fact that um joe biden was going to 
become president. So it makes sense that the people who uh, you know are members of Congress and who the Capitol Police are protecting are very angry about this huge failure. As they should be. Yes. Yes. As but, they but, should, but, as they should be. Yes. You know there. There hasn't been, you know, there has not been a passage of a new Homeland Security law. There has not been a... You don't um, need passages of Patriot, laws. This is the whole Patriot, thing. But there hasn't been a Patriot Act 2.0. Right, but this is an administrative state. This is a bureaucratic state. It's all interpretation of rules. This is one of the reasons the American state is so anti-democratic. You don't actually need the passage of laws to do horrible things. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's all interpretation of rules. I mean, look at the, the, the lawyers in the Bush and Obama administrations, you know, justifying basically whatever they wanted to justify. So I think that uh, looking for a criterion uh, to the passage of law is just not this is just not an accurate reflection about how power actually works in the system. Well, I guess we'll have to see how this actually plays out. Okay, so you're right. They can, the, 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 the powers that the state has are already pretty expansive, and it's just how they apply it and whether courts push back or not. So we'll have to see how... Not even courts, not necessarily. I mean, you could have totally internal White House decision-making on uh, interpretation of rules. Right, but there would be, if someone had, you know, a tort uh, against them or whatever, they would um, they would sue because we live in a very legalistic country. But, um, you know, what, so let's say that, um, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis becomes president, and then there's another sort of uh, uprising in some blue state city, like has been happening in, you know, Portland or something, and then we'd have to see what would happen if if President DeSantis like re- did what Tom Cotton wanted uh, Trump to do and like did send in the military and really did start like cracking heads or opening fire on crowds of protesters who are uh, nonviolent or or, or violent. Um, and then we'd have to see what would happen. I mean, it's it like it's mostly norms that present prevent that sort of thing from happening. And you know um, who got in trouble for what have you know, for Kent State, I, I have no idea. Does, did anyone get fired because of Kent State? Um, it was just like sort of national revulsion um, that made that an iconic. I actually don't know the, the micro moment. details of that, um, but my 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 guess is probably not. Just knowing the Nixon administration, right? Um, so, but I, I actually don't know. Um, this is not an area of expertise. But so I think but, we have we will have to see how this plays out. There hasn't, you know, a Biden has not like a like announced like like the democracy force or something like a new and people should be like turning in their neighbors kind of thing is like what's happening in russia well, right there now. was something like that right there was something i uh, uh i got i don't remember exactly so maybe i'm not incorrect but i thought there was something along the lines of maybe it wasn't the administration but there were calls for like people to be aware of what you know their neighbors and their family members are doing i believe and right I and, and you know, on that. okay and so there were plenty of people in America who knew that their loved ones or friends were getting very in, into this thing called QAnon, you know, over the past couple of years. And probably some of them were like, didn't pay attention to it. And some of them were like, this is weird. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And maybe other ones are like, you're saying crazy things about Tom Hanks being like a pedophile or a clone. And so I'm trying to disabuse you of these notions. And um, so going, so after January 6th, Probably people will take that more seriously if they know someone who seems to be going into this weird radicalization fantasy land and that kind of thing. And maybe those people will be more likely to call the police if they like their. But son, is that the solution? I mean, like, well, this if is their the son, problem, right? if their son is like starts assembling, uh, starts, yes, like, if you start assembling weapons, sure. Well, yeah, but it's, I feel very like easy, for... it's very easy to assemble weapons in America because you can get a gun. Right. And that's not illegal. Like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, this so is sort a big of, problem. So probably these know. things will be. I mean, these aren't good developments, but pro- but probably these things will be like 
yeah, more people, uh, mothers will be calling 911 because they think their son, you know, is like, hasn't left his room in 72 hours and is very angry about critical race theory or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think there's, I don't know, there's not, um, we're, we're not moving to like East Germany. I guess Stasi just to, territory. to, to, to wrap up, uh, uh, this this uh, part of the conversation, I, I, it just seems hard to me to see what positive, uh, what positive benefits will come out of treating uh, the riots of January six as as something more um, structurally terrifying than they actually were. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I have come to the sort of the pessimistic point of view that almost any like new development in American life ultimately like has negative more negative consequences than positive ones. It's like uh, twenty five years ago, it's like oh, we have this way to. Um, you know, get into like chat rooms and like I can sit in my house and like talk to strangers and stuff. So, like that's fun. And then it like you know mostly results in more human misery than uh, than than human flourishing. Um, and so I'm not sure I agree with you there, but that's another conversation. <laughs> okay, well, I think that that's like the. That's the easy criticism of the internet. I don't think it's accurate. I think I think that sort of misery is a function of not of the technology, but well, of the it's material part, it's, it's technology and capitalism. Um, you would. I'm not a socialist. Yeah. Which, which, which is that. the which is the big one there? Yeah, is it okay, the internet yeah. or the entire structure of society? It's it's both. Um, so yeah, okay. Well, let's yeah, it is. Let's both, yeah. let's leave that one there. Uh, okay, let's let's talk about something a little more lighthearted, and that sure. is an article that you co-wrote that Randy Jacobin will include the link. <laughs> Ploggy heads. Um, Slimer on Coke, Muncher on Zoloft is the headline. And this yeah. is, it's really one of the, my favorite things that I've read over the past year or so. And so it's you, <laughs> you, Matt, Chrisman, and Amber, right? Um, yep, previously yep. mentioned Amber Frost. Amber Lee Frost, yeah. So they're, they're both Chapo, Trap House hosts. And you looked at, um, Ghostbusters, the original 1985 Ghostbusters, but also the, the news peg is that there's this, uh, there's a new version of Ghostbusters. Maybe I guess it was supposed to come out last year, but delayed till this year. And, um, and they released a, a promotional image of one of the ghosts who is named Muncher. Um, and so this is sort of like the updated version of Slimer, except Muncher is maybe not quite so uh, happy, joyful, extravagant as Slimer, the character we all grew up, us older geriatric millennials grew up loving in the late 80s and early 90s. And yeah, I encourage everyone to, to read this piece. It's really, I think it's really uh, funny and, and well done. Um, but please tell us a little, a little bit more about where this came from. Sure. So, so we, you know, we were, we were friends, we were chatting, uh, Matt, uh, Amber and I, and we were, you know, just kind of riffing on, you know, the, 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 the funniness uh, of comparing, you know, Slimer, who, if people remember from the original Ghostbusters, is this green blobbish ghost, but, you know, it's kind of has like a, a, a joie de vivre. You know, he's constantly consuming, he's having fun. He's silly. He's running around. He he probably most importantly for people of my and Aria's age was the the mascot of the Ghostbusters cartoon, the real Ghostbusters, where yeah. he was essentially a childlike figure and, and was funny and curious and sweet. Uh, and so he just like had a, had a zest for living, a zest for life. And then you compare the Slimer <laughs> uh, to the at least obviously of course the movie hasn't come out so there's you know um, projection but to this this blobbish blue ghost who is like in a, I think uh, the line we had who's in a rictus grin uh, clinging on 
to a uh, uh, kind of like an oil, oil derrick type thing or like a like a water tower type thing in front of a field of corn. And we were just like, it's kind of funny that, you know, like this this sluggish type uh, figure is like um, put in front of this uh, field of corn. And, and obviously everyone knows with the corn subsidies and that, you know, there's corn syrup and everything. And so much of our food is processed corn. Uh, and it's literally killing a lot of Americans, probably linked to things like cancer increases. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but that's my understanding. I have apologies if I'm wrong. You know, and a, a general sort of like sluggishness to American life. And it was interesting to see how in, you know, Ghostbusters was released in 84. Uh, this new one will be released in 2021. How in the 37 years, you know, the, the big difference between the, the belief in America that defined, you know, I would say, you know, a, a shadow belief or, or, or a belief that didn't really make sense, Reagan era America with what's going on today, where really no one believes in the system and everyone is really depressed. And so we made arguments about how, like, how the first one <laughs> took place in New York City and this new one takes place in the Midwest. Like, you know, people are, are leaving the city because it's just too expensive to live. They've got to return you know, a, a remigration back to the rural area and feeding themselves on corn. They're all depressed and sluggish as opposed to, you know, the 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 heightened experiences of Reagan's era uh, 80s New York. Yeah. So I encourage everyone to read the piece. And then you also did a conversation on uh, the podcast Low Culture Boil, where you talked about this also, which was enjoyable. Um, and oh, yeah, everyone listen to Low Culture Boil. It's a, it's a really good podcast that basically takes like an academic critical look to like things that are quote unquote low culture. Yeah, th- yeah. Uh, check check that podcast out. Um, and so so the, your the framing of this piece of Ghostbusters being sort of a paradigmatic eighties Reagan era movie uh, really made a ton of sense to me. And it's, you know, Ghostbusters is probably one of the movies I've seen the most in my life because it was just one of those ones we had on VHS Same, when I was yeah. a kid. And it would be on TV all the time, and you could just drop it at any point, and and it's just fun and silly. And it, it also is one of those movies that became a kids' movie, but but sort of like is an adult movie in a lot of ways. And like, there's you know, there's a part where a ghost uh, gives a blowjob to Dan Aykroyd's character, which is the kind of thing you wouldn't a child wouldn't understand, or maybe the parent would fast forward past that little it's moment. It's not a kids' movie. It's not a kids' movie. Right, it's, but then it's it turned into because of right, the merchandising. Yeah. The merchandising yeah. of the '80s um, made it. Uh, and the fact that they did this cartoon version of it that was like explicitly for children um, made it this iconic thing for kids. And I'm actually, um, I'm just briefly show. I'm wearing my my '80s um, my '80s uh, toy shirt right now, and you can see there's there's Egon, the Revolutionist Prime in the middle, He Man, Batman, Voltron, Smurf, and there's Egon uh, with his you know proton pack and so forth. And you can see how sweaty I get during the, when I keep these things. Uh, sorry, everyone, but um, but yeah, and so thinking about how Ghostbusters embodies the values of Reagan's eighties um, made a ton of, a ton of sense to me. And it's, I, I, you guys were sort of joking on joking on the square, but you know, the villain in the movie, uh, but aside from like Gozer, the real villain is uh, an EPA bureaucrat who shuts down the containment unit and, and thus, right. thus um, releases all these stored uh, ghoulies and ghosts and causes havoc. Um, the main characters are academics who are sort of like, some of them at least are like explicit frauds and they're ensconced within um, Columbia university and they uh, don't want to, and they get kicked out and then they have to go in the private sector. And there's a line you highlight where I think Ray says, um, you know, I've been in the private sector. They expect results. And so um, our heroes are sort of like, you know, ex academics who become small business owners uh, by creating the ghostbusters. And they're sort of like doing, they're sort of privatizing what 
could be considered a public, you know, the kind of thing that like a public agency should deal with because ghosts are sort of a, you know, particular, but also a common uh, problem. And so the Ghostbusters are somewhere between like the police, the firefighters and like plumbers or something. And they, they're wearing these. Yeah. They're dressed like plumbers. Yeah. I think the idea was that they'd be exterminators in the, in the script. They're dressed like exterminators kind of. Yeah. They're, they're these jumpsuits. Uh, and so, yeah. So if they're exterminators, you know, there's no, you hire a private exterminator. Uh, generally the governments don't, um, uh, don't employ their own exterminators and they're busting ghosts, certainly. And then, you know, you, the part of the movie is the Ghostbusters get thrown in jail. And then the mayor, uh, at one point has to demand, get me the Ghostbusters because it's like only these people in the private sector can rescue, rescue the city from all the ghosts and ghoulies that are happening. Um, yeah. So I think right. there's, there really is a lot there. Well, it's like- and it, it's a baby boomer shift to basically neoliberalism, right? These are countercultural figures who essentially have a very conservative understanding of politics as expressed in the script, you know, which is basically the story of the baby boom generation, the decline of radicalism and the embrace of neoliberal capitalism. And I think you see it uh, through this. And I think all those guys are like, I think they were like 33. So they're like exactly in the baby, perfect baby boomers. Um, so yeah. And I think that, I think the, the, the film, which is a great film. Yeah. I, I one of my, probably top five of all time um i mean does reflect you know the the zeitgeist the spirit of the age uh and that was a conservative anti-government small you know uh small yeoman farmer slash small business owner which is what that transformed into a vision of politics um and i think the vision of politics at least expressed through the munchers uh still is gonna uh of the of the 2021 ghostbusters is gonna be very depressing it's going to be, you know, it's very nostalgic. It's it's IP. It's not original. I think it has to do with Egon's family. Egon's dead, so it's a return to the glory days. Um, so whatever you guys think. Yeah. So you you riffed a lot on this one image and did riffed it riffed in a way that you know Matt Christman is just very good at riffing. We'll have to see what happens when the movie actually comes out. They're, they did release sort of a teaser trailer scene, um, where you see the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man like coming back to life as like these little, like these little ghouly sort of thing that's like starts attacking Paul Rudd. So they're, they're, they're playing on the nostalgia uh, that, and our warm feelings for the original one and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and all that stuff. And they're, you know, rebooting it. And the, so that's a classic thing that's been happening for the past 20 years in Hollywood. Um, I guess I, it, but it also, it, uh, the director is uh, the guy who, the original director's son, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, is it Ivan Reitman? Is that who directed it? I believe Ivan Reitman played yeah. Egon just as Jason Reitman. Is no, no, Harold, Harold Ramis. Oh, no, Harold Ramis. Oh, no. Yeah, okay. Ivan Reitman is a ghost, uh, is a director and his son, um, uh, Jason. I yeah, think Jason. Okay. Jason yeah, Reitman. I was yeah, yeah. these, these two people, but so, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this whole, we don't need to get into this whole thing, but like, you know, this whole thing of, old intellectual property being rebooted and then they change some things and then people are mad and it just by the literal children who made the first one <laughs> if that doesn't reflect our society i don't know what does <laughs> yeah and there's this whole you know you uh you murdered my childhood you destroyed my childhood thing because you know now like she-ra is bisexual or whatever it is um yeah I, that, that those sorts of arguments are just so sad that like adults make like care about these children's entertainments that's so grim to me that people like literally get these angry responses. I, I think probably mostly men is my understanding. It's just yeah. so grim. Well, that's it's what, that's what you have to be worried about. That's what you have to be angry about. Yeah. So there's a real sort of like decadence decline sort of thing, because like we can't come up with any new ideas. We're just rehashing 
the old stuff over and over again and um and yeah uh, another star wars another star trek another he-man another transformers at the same time like okay i don't get super mad about these things i could imagine some like parallel version of myself getting super mad about them though because like you know the things that you loved as a child um you know you come to sentimentalize them and view them in a certain way and then when you confront them again as an adult you see things differently but you know if I were to go back, so the thing I was really into as a kid was Transformers. If I were to go back and watch the original Transformer cartoons, I'd be like, this is boring. Like the animation is so bad. It's so cheesy and everything. But then when it like comes back as this huge Hollywood multi-million dollar special effects extravaganza and still, and like sucks, then it somehow seems even worse than just like realizing the things you were doing as a kid were products for children and not really all that good. Generally, some of them, some of them were good. Most of them were average or crap. Um, you can see how it does make people angry in a way that like, I don't know, it's sort of like a Freudian thing about like realizing your parents are perfect beings or something like that. Or then, but then it's worse because it'd be like, if your parents, you know, wrote a, um, you know, wrote a novel about your childhood and what you were the villain or, or something along those lines, like it, it strikes at something within us. Um, and yeah, so I, I understand in some respects that the people get super angry about it. Well, I mean, it. it's a, it's, it's basically a general thing I think we see in our politics that we don't think there's a future really, right? So the only, the only joy can be had in past experience, right? Nostalgia is not a sign of a, of a healthy culture. It's a sign of not a healthy, unhealthy culture. I'm not going to say necessarily decrepit or in decline because I don't think culture works in that sort of like, um, cyclical way, but it's, it's just not a sign of a vibrant space. I agree with uh, that. To be lost in nostalgia. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, the winning slogan in 2016 was make America great again. And so that was a very nostalgia, nostalgic idea. And it, it was, in my opinion, you know, we were nostalgic for the 1950s sitcom America. It wasn't even nostalgia for reality. It was nostalgia for entertainment. It had a, a mythic vision of, of, you know, what a mid-century America. And speaking of mythic visions, how's that for a, um, for that's a, good, man. That, <laughs> for this a is, segue. That's um, a good segue. The final topic we want to cover is, you know, one that a lot of people are talking about these days. More and more you're hearing people talk about this critical race theory and sort of this whole bizarre cultural, you know, nonsense about it. Um, and the, the, the part about, you know, how we understand America and how we understand the, the myths that sustain that vision ties into this a lot. And there was an essay, I didn't bring this up before, but did you see uh, John Gans's uh, Substack essay about this from a couple uh, weeks ago? What did, he, what did, what did John say? Uh, so it, it had a lot rolling to it. 1690 Project revisited the Anglo-Saxon roots of critical race theory. It's a very interesting piece. And it made me sort of understand. So, you know, people have been taught since, since the 1619 Project thing came out, people have been, this has been making people angry, uh, including people on the, the blog AS platform. Um, and I didn't get it. I didn't get both why people love this so much or why people are so angry about it. I was thinking like- About this is, critical race theory? Well, I, 1619 is connected to critical race theory uh-huh, in uh-huh. sort of the um, the way the whole blob has like formed. So there's like 1619 critical race theory, you know, um, anti-racism of the- Kendi sort white fragility. Right. This is all so sort of my understanding. So, like, block. I 
I have been an observer of this, and I'm not a specialist in early America, so I, I am not taking a stand just because I haven't read the essays. So just putting that out on the table, but I have read the debates around them. My understanding is that the criticism of the 1619 Project from the right is something along the lines of that um, slavery uh, is pre- presented as an original sin, and it's not patriotic, and it's not um, – and it's not, you know, unovercomable. And, and my understanding is that criticism from the left is that uh, slavery and the enslavement of Africans is also presented as an original sin, which makes it appear that it's like a permanent stain and that change is impossible. That's my understanding of the general debate over 1619. Um, so the left and the right, um, for, again, from what I understand, both focus on this notion of original sin, but take different implications from it mm-hmm. um, as sort of – so the, the left, if my understanding is correct, basically say that it says that the, the project presents it as like, that's it. This is what it is. You know, we'll never be able to o- uh, overcome racism in this country because it's, it's embedded uh, into it, and that is a pessimistic, cynical view is my understanding is the left critique. And the, and the right critique is what one could imagine as sort of like a nationalist um, you know, and implicit elements uh, among some of them, at least, of, of white supremacist approach to uh, American history. Uh, so that's my understanding of the debate. Um, with critical race theory, um, I actually first came, came across critical race theory about nine or ten years ago as as a legal theory. Uh, my understanding it, it was um, and still is, for that matter, primarily confined to law schools, and it's a particular approach to understanding uh, how law functioned over time, which is yeah. essentially that like structural conditions of, of race and racism shape. Law, illegal outcomes, which to me seems pretty irrefutable. Yeah, uh, the, and so the, this the, to me, the way uh, people are talking about it now very, seems totally not totally seems largely disconnected from what the original thing is. And so we can just say, it, sort of, people eighteen months ago were talking about wokeness or Black Lives Matter, and, and now they're Marxism, talking about or twenty years ago, twenty years ago, political correctness, right? So it's the latest cultural yeah, uh, so, fixation of the right, basically. I mean, yeah. So in a way, that, using, that using this term. And, and debating whether the term applies is, you know, part of it, but also like people are mad about something and they're not mad about, you know, legal theorizing from 30 years ago. Like they're mad about something that's, that is happening or they perceive as happening now. Um, and it's not, you know, a esoteric uh, understanding of the American legal tradition. It's, it's not even that esoteric. This is what there's a lot of critique. It's, it's not that esoteric saying that racial structures inform legal outcomes to me is like pretty basic. Okay, <laughs> it's maybe like esoteric, a pretty insightful esoteric thing. isn't the right word, but like, you know, it's sort of like um, one way of understanding the law that is not the mainstream way of understanding it. And yeah, it's like cultural Marxism or something. So anyway, something is happening. And I just, I'll just read this line from Connor Friedrichs. He's about this. Uh, the populist right is using. Can I just critical- say one thing? What just very qu- quickly about Connor? Well, let me um, okay. go off. On, go off on very, Connor. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to go off on Connor. But I just find it annoying. And Connor, not personally, I, I won't go off on him. But this general thing that I see, which is like a criticism of American universities paying absolutely no attention to what's actually happening to professors, which is that they're being hollowed out. Which is that 78 percent of people. Uh, are teaching on adjunct uh, contracts, which makes it impossible to actually give good education to children. So if anyone actually cared about education instead of basically culture war talking points, 
they would point to the structural inequalities of academia. So I just find it very frustrating that this is what the focus is, as opposed to what the, the, the labor conditions of so many people who are suffering as adjunct professors. And to me, this whole thing basically misses the point. And it's just a shame that someone like Connor with this national platform focuses on what is essentially not the main story of what's right. happening in universities. Well, the, Sorry. the thing that people are mad about now, and it probably will not be the thing they're mad about six months from now, is not right. about colleges. It's about K twelve, and it's about it's these law and it's laws that state legislatures are. But passing. Connor has done a lot of cancel culture stuff, and I agree and with has, that. It's, it is not it is not separate. It is part of the same discursive space. So okay, I'm reading a line, and then I will point out something that I disagree with, it, and then you can uh, tear it apart as well. Uh, this is from Connor's piece. We'll link to it. Uh, the populist right is now using critical race theory, a term that originally referred to a distinct decades-old form of scholarship about racism in American politics and law, to encompass everything conservatives dislike about leftist identity politics, while the progressive left now understands CRT to be mere common-sense truths about racism in America. Okay, so I think he the word leftist is incorrect there. This is not a leftist thing. Um, but aside from that, no. it, it sort of does make sense. Something is happening. There are People are talking about new things that they weren't talking about 10 years ago. And it's not about Kimberly Crenshaw. It's about are white people inherently good or bad? Um, you know, should, what happens if the teacher tells little Timmy that, you know, his ancestors did bad things to black people? It's more stuff like that. So it gets more into the mythic part. And this is what Gans's piece really clarified for me is what did John say? Okay, he relates it back to this, what he calls the uh, the Anglo-Saxon roots of critical race theory, which is this idea that um, going back to like the 1600s and 1700s in England about uh, whether, basically, you know, whether the Norman conquest sort of like ripped every, like the common law understanding of the Anglo-Saxons like up together or sort of like whether that was a legitimate you know, political act. It, it, he explains it much better than I'm able to. I encourage people to read this piece. But basically, there were people back then who were saying, you know, the Normans really fucked up this great Anglo-Saxon thing we had. And there's nothing... Wait, is John referring to actual documents or is this like a thought experiment? No, this is things that actually people were debating, you know, in the 1700s. Intense, in, wait, in the anglo Oh, people were... The 1700s were debating 1066. Yes. That's... Okay, that's what's going on here. Okay, yes. so and a so mythic there understanding. There were people back then who were saying... You know, the, there was nothing like legitimate about the Norman conquest. Like this is just because they won. I'm, I'm probably getting some facts of this wrong. You know, they they won the battles, but that doesn't mean that like what they did what, had like divine providence behind it or was right. Right. And so there are things within right. the Anglo theodicy problem. Yeah. There are things within the Anglo-Saxon tradition that were usurped by the Norman conquest, and and so it's sort of like the entire it, you know like the this is getting into like the English civil war and um, whether right, there right, should right. be a, a, a king or not. And, right. um, and, and it's all about, it's about myths. It's not about really the truth. It's about the myth of, you know, um, uh, you know, the divine right of Kings kind of thing back then, but today it's the myth is, is America a good country? And that's, right. that's what like right. children. Right. It's a theodicy for, problem for a long time. Well, it's literally America's a good country. What is God good? And if God is good, how can he allow evil in the world? Right. Well, and this we, is, we a, can't talk about that in public schools. So that sort of stuff. Well, I mean, as, the, as, as mainline Protestantism has the, 
No, well, I would say, I and I agree with David Hollinger, the great historian at Berkeley, on this, as mainline Protestantism went into decline, it basically became secular liberalism after World War II. So a lot of these theological uh, problems have been secularized, even though they have their value. Again, Matt Karp talks about this in his piece, and I think it very insightfully. Um, so there is a theological element to it. It's just submerged. Um, and which is why I think you get notions like original sin, uh, prevailing, uh, you know, yeah. there is an element of original sin. I don't think that's an incorrect interpretation. Again, I haven't read it, but that's my understanding. Enough people I respect have said that. So there is a theological element to a lot of these things, but that, that then they get put on a, a, on sort of a secular, in a secularized discourse. Yeah. So we're, the, the sort of like the, um, the surface level is these debates, you know, and people, mad at Ibram Kendi and um, Robin D'Angelo and this kind of stuff. And, but then the, like the, the, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into like Jordan Peterson territory now, like really what's happening beneath are these sort of like mythic, like ideas about like good and evil. Yeah. Sin and forgiveness. Yeah. I, I, redemption, I, that, that's redemption. not Jordan Peterson. Well, I, I, mean, I mean, we're, we're more, are we Freudian? Are we Jungian? I don't, I don't know. Um, But it really is like, is is a lot of it is is what you were taught as a child about America and you came to believe and not think about a lot but just sort of inherently believe about this being a good country committed to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. Like, was that a lie? Like, were you told a lie as a child and kept on believing that? And then are the are these liberal um, teachers going to right? So, tell your so to me, that's ultimately to me this is like ultimately an empirical question. Right. Like to take your normative values as expressed in whatever documents, you know, and it's interesting that you have a document, you know, serving in place of the Bible, right, where it, it occupies a semi-mythic status. The, Let's say the, in the, the Constitution? The Constitution of the Declaration of Independence, I mean, whatever people refer to, I think it differs. Um, do the normative ideals as expressed in those documents reflect what happened in American history? And I think people – um, if they took an honest look at it, would answer that question in a particular way. Now, there's also the other question. I think this is what like Glenn Lowry um, would say, and obviously Glenn's someone I respect. I spend a lot of time speaking with him. He would say that like it never lived up to its ideals, but that doesn't mean that its ideals are like literally capital T true. And that and that might be the case. That's that's mostly a philosophical problem. And then the question is how do we how do we reach those ideals? And and I think that's what. Um, uh, uh, that that's what someone like Glenn would say um, to you know the, one of the one of the critics of the 1619 project. Yeah, from the and, right. and I think like I, I'm not you know there's this idea of like the noble lie, and I don't fully understand this, but you know it's sort of like I think this is where Glenn. This is one of the things that gets Glenn angry about. It, it's sort of like if we if we teach our children that this country was horrible to begin with, then like what's the point of trying to you know try and like like do the things that will get you to succeed in American life, like going to school and yeah. like working a I job. I mean, ultimately this whole thing was like fucked up and was exploiting black people and like a crock of shit right, to what's begin the point? with. Right. That, so like, right. we need I mean, to tell I just the commoners think... that there's this like higher thing going on and that it's not like, a, you know, poisoned, like there, there was this poison branch or poison seed or something at the very beginning. And so the entire thing is rotten, evil right. and, and horrible. 
Right, which is I, uh, you know, which is not not an absurd argument. You know, uh, I think people have to take that 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 argument seriously, and and what that what that might mean. I mean, I think I regret uh, I regret <laughs> I reject the paternalist politics inherent in that because I just think that again empirically, experts have shown that they don't know better. They have fucked up things so badly that you know I, I'm skeptical of the inherent like pastoralism uh, and paternalism in that in that in that in that argument. Uh, and I I would also say that that. Um, you know, I, I just don't think K to twelve education is having that sort of ideological effect on people. I think people are much more likely to get their understanding of American history from other sources, not not you know the forty minutes every two days they spend yeah. in history classes in, in seventh grade. I think. Yeah, I mean, how many I, things that how many things that you were video? taught in middle school do you really remember? Or you know, it's it, it sort of. Again, it's sort of this fight about the surface and tapping on the surface. Yeah, you get a general – I would say Saving Private Ryan was far more important to my understanding of U.S. history than anything I learned in middle school. And I'm sure that's true for many kids today with video games and movies and yeah. TV. So I think this is like uh, – education is always a space of dissent because this is who the people who make media culture. This is the world that they live in. They're all college educated, and oftentimes they all went to like the same 30 to 40 schools. So they are obsessed over education because that is their world. But I – I am yeah. a, I am skeptical of whether education has a sort of causal impact on ideology that that these arguments suppose. I yeah, might be so, wrong. So both, an both sides. I, no, I I agree that both sides are sort of falling for this. That both that if we have it, it, a week spent on anti-racism training, this will make the students no longer racist. I don't think that's <laughs> the case. No, also that, it, the children, yeah. the, you know, the right-wing conspiracy version of it, like the children are being indoctrinated with you know, Marxian cultural Marxism, blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, how many Americans do you think probably believe that like George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and then said, I cannot tell a lie about it. Probably like half or more, I would think. Probably a fair amount, right? Because people don't like, why the hell would someone spend their time in these esoteric historical debates? I mean, there's just no sense that we have a world, a political economy that makes people work all the time, you know? And so they're not going to have these times. So this is, again, just uh, a lot of these debates to me are just kind of like, I don't know. Pointless is too strong, but they seem a little bit besides the point because they're just college educated people in the media sphere arguing over shit on Twitter uh, or in the pages of the Atlantic. And I just don't think the causal force of those arguments or even what they're arguing over is ultimately that influential, that impactful, that important. Yes, that makes sense to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking now that the, there's a connection between our previous topic, which is, you know, you, uh, Zack Snyder ruined my childhood because of the way he portrayed Superman. It's like, you know, the things we were taught as children, you know, stay with us inside our, inside ourselves, even if we reject them. And, you know, so there's people who probably think that, you know, Ibram Kendi is, 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 you know, destroying their, their childhood if they were taught that America was good. And, you know, we've, we've been the positive force of the world throughout. 200 years or, and, or even that there's a divine providence, you know, within the founding of America, uh, so on and so forth, you know, we're getting at, we're getting at myths and things that are like held deeply and sort of arguing, you're not going to argue someone out of that. I think like, you're not going to, I don't know. You're, I, I, I don't think you take someone who thinks America is good and you're going to present so an argument many... to them that, that actually America is bad. Like that's not and how this, it works. The, uh, again, in education, there's so many more important things happening. Um, 
that I really wish – not to say this isn't important. Obviously, I think I do think that like teaching people about the realities of American racism and, 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 and the history of American racism, which is awful and it's brutal and genocidal uh, and, and, and terrible in every way, shape, or form is, in, is, is very important. But I just wish it didn't um, – the you know debates about CRT, which are really just updated debates about cultural Marxism, which are really just updated ba- debates about political correctness, didn't suck out all the oxygen and people focus a little bit more on, on the structural conditions of labor in, 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 in the university system, both at the K through 12 level and at the university level. To me, that is such an important story that just gets almost no coverage and mm-hmm. almost no discussion in these very uh, elite spaces. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I do want to add in is, you know, I've been sort of saying this whole thing is, you know, a big ball of nonsense, but like there are things that are changing about the way people and organizations and institutions are treating these things and that is causing some form of um, blowback or backlash or something like, and so an example of this is that um, I'm applying for jobs right now. And, I, and there's been a couple times where, you know, you have to fill out these forms online and there's a required field that says like, how will you further diversity uh, equity? Right. And to and me, inclusion. that's just, and the so, domestication of these of the, of these radical criticisms, which is again the history of the last fifty years, that corporate America domesticates radical critique to serve the ends of itself and ultimately capitalism. Right. So you know, um, Coca Cola is not going to really do a lot in this world to you know uh, further diversity, equity, inclusion. Maybe if they went out of business and stopped selling sugar water to the children of the world, that that would do that. But so it's sort of like it's bullshit and phony in that respect, but like, if you actually have to like fill out these applications and think about it and think about something that whoever is reading this statement is not going to, you know, uh, mark you like throw your resume away because of this, then you're thinking about things that maybe, you know, wouldn't have been the, the job applicant 10 years ago wouldn't have had to think about. And it's like, well, what is one can think, um, sure. you know, this whole thing is a sham and bullshit. And then that makes one more likely to think that, you know, um, white fragility and so forth are a sham and bullshit, which probably it does seem like white fragility is a sham and bullshit. Um, haven't read it. Um, and, and won't, but, uh, oh, yeah, that's, so, the, that's the Robin D'Angelo book. Yeah. That's right? the D'Angelo one. I don't know. That's I've heard plenty of people talk about this. I haven't read, read them. Yeah. It seems like Kendi is more respectable than D'Angelo who. Yeah. Kendi's like, a trained historian. I yeah. He, but, but anyway, he was an something is happening and it's not total. It, it's not just, it, it, it in ways it is, the same debate people were having in the 80s and 90s about political correctness, but like it's different, it's different in other ways or something new is happening and it's going to cause, you know, reactions in, in various ways. Um, and the thing that's happening, you know, it, it's unclear to me. Yeah, whether I mean, it, the, and it isn't a bad thing to like be aware of how, you know, structures work in society. I think that's like on, on balance, a positive development to be aware about how, you know, Conditions of racism shaped various things and being asked to, um, uh, to, to reflect on that in a job application, you know, isn't the worst thing in the world. Of course not. Yeah. Have you, this is, um, somewhat signed up, somewhat related. Have you ever heard of the, or this debate about affinity groups, especially in like high schools? Uh, no, what's that? So I only, I know about this, uh, a teacher told me about this, um, last year. And this woman is a teacher at a private school in New York City, and this school has something called affinity groups. And so it's sort of like an extracurricular thing, but you have to participate it. It's sort of like, you know, back in the day when like every kid had to 
play a sport or something. So every every kid has to be part of an affinity group. And so there's a black affinity group, there's a Hispanic affinity group, there's a gay affinity group. Um, and because this is a religious school, there's um, probably some religious affinity groups. But then like there's some kids who are left over and they're like in the white affinity group. And so what are you know, what's going to happen in the they're in, in the, the white, white affinity group? It's probably not called that explicitly, but like because everyone has to be in, in an affinity group. If you're not, you know, if you're not in the disabled or the uh, gay right. or well, the black is... affinity group, they they stick to they're like everyone else is in this other thing. But then those right. kids are like reading White Fragility or the high school equivalent, whereas the the black affinity group is you know reading Tanahasi Coates. And so the black affinity group is learning about black stuff and then the white affinity group is learning about how bad white people are. And this whole thing seems stupid to me. I, again, I'm going off of an anecdote, but um, – Yeah, it's a transformation in liberalism, right? During the Cold War, it was all about the melting pot, and, and, and there are lots of historical explanations about why that was in order to build up consensus, you know, third-generation children of immigrants, blah, blah, blah. And I think we're going to look back on this time and see like how liberalism transformed and embrace certain, uh, certain different elements and that were both reflected the time and reflected transformations in larger historical structures and things like that. I think that that, uh, that is definitely going to be the case, and it's difficult to see when you're in, in it. Of what exactly uh, what what transformations these sorts of phenomena precisely uh, reflect ideologically, institutionally, and materially? Yeah, and so this is sort of getting into like the Barry Weiss like newsletter beat that she you know uh, weird things are happening at fancy New York City private schools, and the parents are unhappy. But I can imagine if I was a rich New York City parent, and then my white kid was being you know was <laughs> part of his day was being filled with. Um, the white affinity group uh and reading you know white fragility excerpts or something like i'd be like what what is you know this this is stupid and and or getting I mean, the white that. affinity group that is like a frightening you so know it's not, it's not, it wouldn't be called the white affinity group maybe it was like the unaffiliated <laughs> affinity group or something but like uh-huh. because this particular school and maybe this is just unusual that this particular school was doing this made it so that like you know one period a week instead of going to study hall the kids all went to their affinity groups you know, they had to they had to have the leftover group, and that was you know the basic white people essentially, who are probably some of them descendants of you know of Peter Stuyvesant and so forth. But right, um, right, right. in New York, yeah, especially, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. that I, when when this woman told me about this, I was I found it very strange, and but. You know, so weird things are happening, and people are yeah, make things. Some things are mad. being worked out, as they say. Things uh, <laughs> things are happening and being worked out. Things are happening. Um, okay, so t- tell us a little bit more about your podcast that you are launching. As oh, sure, did. yeah. So um, it's it, the first episode. Will I, I guess when when will this be released? This will tomorrow. Probably this will probably go up uh next week would be my guess next week so um last friday july 9th which is the day of recording but is for you all listeners and viewers in the past um i'm launching a podcast uh titled american prestige with derek davison who runs uh really i would say the essential uh foreign policy news substack called foreign exchanges i really uh i really implore people who are interested in international affairs to subscribe to derek's thing uh again foreign exchanges it's a really the best source of, of just news on what's going on in the world and history mm-hmm. and whatnot um and he, he, so he, was on, I, he was on a couple weeks ago with with bob Wright and did an interesting uh, yeah about- he, he- 
Iraq. He was on with Bob Wright uh, about Iraq, yeah. And Derek, more than anyone that I, I personally know, just knows the details of what's going on in so many uh, areas of the world, in so many countries. It's really impressive. So we're launching a podcast, again, called American Prestige, uh, where I take kind of the macro historical view, and uh, Derek takes more of the, the nitty-gritty what's going on on the ground, uh, analyzing uh, what's going on in the world, how the United States is responding, and, and in particular, interviews with foreign affairs experts. So um, if people are interested in international affairs, Affairs, you know, if they want to get a quick digest of important issues, if they want to um, uh, hear from some, you know, I, I would think interesting people who who normally aren't heard from on a mainstream news sources, like uh, actually Stephen Wartime is, but like Aziz Rana and others, um, I, I, I would uh, I encourage you all to uh, subscribe and and give it a shot. Again, it's called American Prestige. And, and what is? How did you arrive at that title? Um, well, of course, American prestige is like a famous uh, foreign policy community quote about how you always have to worry about like America's prestige in the world because okay. we always constantly have to be number one amongst every uh, everything and everyone. Uh, and so it's a bit of a winking, uh, a winking nod to to that basically meaningless, uh, <laughs> but me- yet totally meaningful uh, phrase. And we've got some really cool arts. That will hopefully be up by the time you guys are able to uh, listen to it. And, uh, yeah, I hope everyone could give it a shot if you think I'm interesting. <laughs> uh, I think you're interesting. That's why I asked you to come on once again today. So thank you for for, for doing so. And um, people should check that out. They can follow you on Twitter. And what is your what is your Twitter handle? Uh, it's just my uh, first initial and last name, D. Bessner. And mine is R-E-A-C-W. And, you know um, – People can rate and review this particular podcast, Culturally Determined, in Apple Podcasts, um, formerly known as iTunes, and that helps, you know, the algorithm, uh, these algorithms with, which control our, our destiny, it, it shows it to more people, that kind of thing. And so uh, if you could do that, um, that would uh, help more people uh, find this content, which um, I think would be a good thing. Um, and uh so why don't we end it there so daniel thank you um thank you for taking the time thanks to our viewers and listeners and uh we'll see you next time thanks aria